You are listening to a sermon from Village Baptist Church in Petaluma. For more sermons like this one, please visit our website at villagebaptisthome.org. Our mission is to win people to Christ and develop them into active disciples. We pray this sermon is a blessing to you. Now let's hear today's message. All right, good morning. Uh, We're in week two of a series we're in in the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have your Bibles, please meet me in Ecclesiastes chapter one. And today we are starting in verse 12. Have you ever heard the phrase, the grass is greener on the other side? I've all heard that phrase before. I want you to imagine you're in your backyard and you're looking at your grass and you're like, my grass is just not as green as I want it to be. So you go and you look at your neighbor's grass right next door to you, and it's so much greener than yours. And so you're envying, you you really wish that you could have their grass. Well, your neighbor says that he's moving. And you say to him, hey, since you're moving, if I sell my house, can I buy your house? And he says, oh yeah, sure. So you sell your house, he sells his house, you buy his, you move into that house, and you run to the backyard and you say, oh, I love this grass. And then you look over at your neighbor's grass and you realize their grass is greener than the grass that you just bought. There's greener than one. And I just got this. So a couple months go by and your neighbor next door to you, he's selling his house. So he's, hey, can I buy your house? If I sell mine and I can have your house? Oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. They sell their house. You move in, get your stuff all in. You run to the back. And you look at the grass, it's so green. But then you look over at the neighbors next to you, and his grass is greener. And here's the problem. No matter what house you get into, the grass is always going to be greener on the other side. You will never be totally satisfied. That's what the teacher is really trying to get us to see, that life under the sun No matter what you do, you'll always be chasing satisfaction and you'll always be looking to the person next door and saying, oh, their grass is greener than mine. Well, um, I don't know if you've ate food before in a way that made you absolutely full. There's only one thing that I eat most of the time that really makes me full and it's sushi. We go to Paradise Sushi. Oh, man, and every time I eat paradise, I'm so full and stuff. And I always say, man, I'm so full, I'll never want to eat again. That's how we look at life. I want to do something so that when I'm done doing it, I'm satisfied, I'm full. But here's the reality. You know, as full as you are, when you wake up the next morning, you'll be waiting to eat again. Because no matter what, we're always looking for satisfaction. And so this is what the teacher is trying to help us to see, that if you looking under the sun, you will never find satisfaction. And so I don't know if you've seen a movie where the individual has to, um, or they show you before the movie begins where they end up or the conclusion. And then the movie is about how they got to that place. Well, that's what the book of Ecclesiastes does. He tells you where he ended up and then he goes back and he tells us how he got there to that point. And so He's already told us in verse 2, the thesis, everything is meaningless. 
So that's why he's going to choose his whole book teaching us about that. But he's going to tell you how he got to that conclusion. And he's going to talk about today a quest that he went on, a quest to find ultimate meaning. So that's why I've labeled the message today, a quest for ultimate meaning. So let's look at verse 12 of chapter 1. It says, I... The teacher was king over Israel and Jerusalem. When we said last week, who's the author of the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, we don't know because he doesn't come out and say. He says, I'm the teacher, I'm the preacher, or I am Koheleth. And it just means the leader of an assembly. And it was the one who would come and teach before the people. But he doesn't say he's Solomon. What we, what we said was it either has to be Solomon or someone who's writing from the perspective of Solomon. Because there's no way that the things he's going to talk about could have been done by anybody else other than Solomon. And so we're, we're supposed to, in our minds, think of this person. And so he's the preacher. He's the teacher. In fact, that's where we get uh, the name of the book, Ecclesiastes. It's the Greek version of the word Koheleth. It's the teacher or the preacher. And he's going to talk about this quest that he went on to find meaning. And each one of these areas, he searched it out to see if in this area he could find real, true meaning. And so we're going to look at each one of those areas. And the first place he stops is Jerusalem University. Look at verse 13. He says, I applied my mind to study and explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So when he gets into uh, Jerusalem University, he is applying his mind to study these things. He said, I'm going to get a PhD in life. Let me see if... Through books, I can figure out the real meaning of life. I applied my mind to study and explore wisdom. And one of the, the conclusions he came to, he said, is that this is burdensome. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. It's a burden for man to have to live in this world. And a lot of people think, well, the way that you gain uh, understanding, the way that you can gain meaning in this world is through education. Make sure you get a good college degree. Make sure you get all the knowledge that you can get. But Solomon, he says at the end, wisdom and knowledge and all, all that understanding, that, that does not give ultimate meaning. In fact, if you know anything about Solomon, you know he was a, a, a very smart person, a smart individual. In the book of 1 Kings, Listen to what it says about Solomon. It says, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan the Ezraite, Wiser than He-Man in the Masters of the Universe, Kal-Kal and Darda, the sons of Mahal. You say, well, who are these people? I don't know. They're very wise people. 
And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke, watch this, 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of, of walls. He also spoke about animals and birds, reptiles, fish from all nations. People came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. This is not just some nerd in his basement <laughs> blogging. This is a dude who all the professors and uh, PhDs, they come to his lectures to hear him talk. And so he is not someone who doesn't understand learning and understanding. But what does he say? He says all of it, it doesn't even mean anything. It doesn't even do anything. That's what he says in verse 15. He likes his Proverbs where he says, what is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. What I've figured out in this life is that things are the way that they are and there's nothing you can do to change them. If you go outside and there's a branch that is crooked, there's nothing you can do to make that branch straight. And what's lacking can't be counted. He's saying if you go to Ikea and you buy a bed for your son and then you get home and it's missing five screws, there's nothing you can do about that. In fact, I've built a lot of beds and a lot of things with screws missing, and it's very dangerous. That's the way life is. Does it feel like you're trying to build, you're trying to do things in life with only uh, not enough uh, uh, screws? What's lacking can't be counted. It's just the way that it is. Wisdom and learning and all that doesn't do anything. Verse 16, he said, I said to myself, in wisdom more than anyone who ruled in Jerusalem before me, I have experienced much wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. So he introduces this new phrase in here, chasing after the wind. And it sounds as ridiculous as it is. Chasing after the wind. If your kids come into the house, what have you been doing? Like, we've been chasing the wind. <laughs> we didn't catch it, but we will tomorrow. Like, you'd be like, you know, you're, you're clearly not thinking straight because you can't catch the wind. And that's what it's like to pursue knowledge. And what he says, even after all this knowledge that I had, you know what it actually makes me? It makes me even more sad because the more knowledge you have, the wiser that you are, the more you see things from a perspective that is just, it, it could be depressing. I've said this before that we've been given an almost godlike attribute because of technology. We're able to know what's going on in the world at all times. And we weren't meant to know, excuse me, to know all that information. We're not meant to know what's happening in Afghanistan, to see those pictures, to see those videos, to hear those cries. We're not, and then to see those in Haiti and those in the fires and those in Santa Barbara and everywhere. There's just too much going on. We're not meant to, to, to handle all of that. The more knowledge, the more wisdom, the more understanding you have, what you end up seeing is oh, it just brings grief. And so he's saying, I, I don't see any benefit, any ultimate satisfaction in chasing after learning. So he leaves from Jerusalem University and says, let's try Pleasure Town. Verse one of chapter two, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. Now, there's something you need to understand what he's doing here. What the teacher is saying is this is all going to be a test or an experiment 
and seeing if I can figure out what gives life meaning. So he is not going into this sort of with his head in the cloud. He's going in saying this is going to be a very controlled experiment so I can figure out what life is all about. I tested myself. This is a very carefully planned experiment. And so he says, I will uh, test you with pleasure to find out what is good, but that also proved to be meaningless. So he walks into Pleasure Town, and the first place he finds is a comedy club. Verse 2, laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? So he walks in, the latest comedian is up there telling his jokes. People are are falling out in the floor, and he's laughing too. He's having a great time. The guy's really funny. A girl comes on, she's really funny. All the top comedians in the town have come out, and he's laughing, and it's a really good time. But you know what he said at the end of that? It's all madness. Laughter is madness, because at the end of all things, it doesn't change anything. There was a uh, guy, he was really, really, truly depressed, and his people said, hey, I think you should go see this therapist. So he went to see this therapist, and the therapist said to him, after about an hour and a half, she said, man, you have a really, really difficult case, but I think I know something that will help you if you go to the comedy club down. There's this new comic in town, and he is killing it. People are falling out in the floors, and I think that will really help you. She says, I think the good book says something about laughter is like good medicine. I think that would help you out. So he says, okay, thank you. And as he's on his way out, he stops, he turns around, and he says, I am that comedian. Isn't it true that a lot of people who are comedians, they're really using laughter and jokes to cover up something that's really hurting in their hearts. Because at the end of the day, we know we can laugh for a moment, but then we have to go back into real life. What, what has impacted you more? Uh, a comedy or a tragedy? We all can come out of rush hour laughing, but it's different than when you come out of Schindler's List. In fact, we went to go see The Passion of the Christ, which is a depiction of Jesus' last few hours on earth and the crucifixion. And I was so nervous going into it because I just knew I'm going to be crying. I I don't want to see this. It's going to be really uncomfortable. And we saw it in all places. You know where we saw it? Vegas. (laughs) We're watching The Passion of the Christ in Sin City. Me, Atien, I think Jonathan was there. Were you there, Jonathan? Yeah, he was there. We walk into this theater in Vegas, and we're, we're quiet the entire time. And we walk out of that theater, having seen what we saw, and we're in the middle of Sin City. People are trying to hand us pictures of naked girls, and we're just walking through them. Just like, what just happened? Because there's something about seeing things the way that they are. And he says, laughter, it's good for a moment, but then it's gone. And it's, it's, it's no longer helpful. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't take away the things that you are feeling about the way that the world is. I remember um, we went to go see Oren's work in Mill Valley a couple years ago, and in walks Robin Williams. And I remember thinking, that's, that's Robin Williams. I'm like freaking out. That's that guy. I mean, Aladdin, you know, he's the genie. He's Mrs. Doubtfire. So, you know, I'm walking by and I'm trying to like take pictures on the sneak tip. Just like. <laughs> <laughs> 
And of course, my my sister-in-law, Anna, she just walks over. She's pregnant at the time. She's like, can we have a picture? She walks over and puts it in his face. And he's like, oh, yeah, sure. And he's such a nice guy, cracking jokes. I mean, I'm just laughing. Why even I'm like trying to take the picture? I'm shaking because it's Robin Williams. Such a funny guy. Such He's brought joy to millions of people. Not too long after that, took his own life. What is it that would make someone who has seemingly so much joy, so much energy, and at home is suffering? Because, again, laughter doesn't bring the ultimate satisfaction that we're looking for. Can't find it in comedy. So he says, now I'm depressed. So he says, let me go to the bar. Verse 3, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me. With wisdom, I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. We only have a few days. What can we do? So he goes to the bar. And he's in the bar. (laughs) And he's drinking. Now, we're not sure because his phrase there where he says, my mind still guiding me with wisdom would take it to mean that he's not unaware of what he's doing. So is he you know, drinking as a connoisseur, just kind of tasting it and seeing if, you know, the, the taste can bring about satisfaction? Maybe. Some scholars believe that instead he was out there getting plastered, that he's, he's waking up after being unconscious in the back of a chariot on the way to Mexico. <laughs> Whatever it was, I wine. Let me try to see if I can drink. And a lot of people do that. They try and drink their troubles away. And what he found out is that it's meaningless. So not comedy, not wine. Verse 4, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself, plural. You know how long it took him to build his house? 13 years. 13 years to build his house. And he built a house for each one of his wives. Each one. You know how many he had? 700. We'll get to that in a minute because that's, that's already. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. Sounds kind of like Eden. This trying to recreate paradise lost. He says, I made reservoirs to Water grows of flourishing trees. You have a garden in your backyard with a few tomato plants. <laughs> he had a forest that he watered, the pools of Solomon. You can actually go and see them today. They're huge. And they, they watered this massive garden that he had. So you got to have somebody to work that. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. So he, he's basically saying, I did nothing for myself. I woke up and there was somebody, good morning, Solomon, here's your eggs and your turkey bacon. And he got up, somebody put a robe on him. The shower's already moving for him. He comes into his living room. There's somebody fanning him, handing him bread. He didn't do anything for himself. It's amazing if you read the things that, that the daily amount of food that was needed. It's in 1 Kings. The daily amount of food that was needed, tons of food, tons of cattle, Scholars say it could have been about 20,000 people every day he's feeding. Every single day. 
Verse 8, I amassed silver and gold for myself and, and the treasure of kings and provinces. There was nobody more wise than Solomon. In fact, it says of Solomon that he made silver as common as rocks. When you walk through the street, you see a quarter, you might pick it up. That's how it was walking in Jerusalem. Silver. Ah, it's just silver. That's how he made silver in that time. He says, uh, amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers. So you walk into his house, he has a choir. He has Pharrell singing it in his living room. <laughs> Clap along if you feel. What's up, Pharrell? Good morning. Any of the great bands today, they're coming to his house and they're playing at Solomon's Palace. Singers. He walks into the living room and they doo-wop. It's just this ridiculous thing, isn't it? You hire singers to just be in your house singing. This is before iPod, this is before CDs, before records. You just go down to the store and buy a record. He's like, I don't buy the band. You just come to the house and just play. This is how ridiculous he is. And then he says, and a harem. Just, 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 let me just throw it in there, and a harem. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Listen to me. I have one wife. We all have one. You have one. 700? This is what you know about Solomon. He would tell you this. He had every culture, every size, every shape, every eye color, every hair texture, and he would tell you it's meaningless. That's what people say. Oh, I just got, I've never been with the right girl. Solomon would say, it doesn't matter. <laughs> they just all start blending together. It doesn't matter. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> but you know what he says at the end there? The delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. He's like, I'm not crazy. I'm not just out there just messing around. This is all an experiment. I'm trying to figure out if I can find satisfaction, and I cannot get it. Verse 10, I denied myself. Nothing my eyes desired. I refuse my heart, no pleasure. What kind of individual sees what he wants and just says, I want that? I try to figure out, is there any way I could even uh, uh, relate to that? Maybe when I take my kids to the dollar store and I say, anything you guys see, <laughs> anything you want. <laughs> Whatever your eyes lay on, it is yours. <laughs> any... Solomon, he walks onto planet Earth and just says, you want that? How, how much you selling that? What do you, what do you call it? Maui? Yeah, what, you want Maui? Anything his heart desired, he want, he could take, he could buy. And at the end of all of that, look at what he says. Verse, the end of verse 10. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward of all my toil. So all this work that I did, everything that I built, everything that I amassed, I got to enjoy it. And what was his conclusion? Verse 11, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, 
Everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. That word surveyed means to come face to face with. When I came face to face with all of the pleasures that I was able to have, it was meaningless. Meaningless. Remember, it's that word in Hebrew, hevel, that means smoke or vapor or breath. It's fleeting. It's passing. It's trying to grab smoke. It's, it's there. It's real, but it's fleeting. You can't really grasp a hold of it. And he says, it's meaningless. It's like a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. The promise of pleasure is the favorite weapon of advertisers. Because what they promise you is that if you take our product, it's going to make you happy. And we all know that when you get that product, no matter how great it is, at some point it becomes old. We love the iPhone when it first came out, right? Portrait mode. <laughs> I don't even use portrait mode now. Remember when we first got it, I was talking to Aura. We had this thing like, you can be a frog or a pig. You can talk. And we were talking back to each other like, what's up, man? Like, how you doing? Da, 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 da. And he was like, you got to get the iPhone, man. Like, I, I've used that two times. And the only time I use it with my kids. And what do we do? We bought it and we got, and, then, and we're like, oh, this is, this is the phone all I need. But you know what's the same thing? That's why my mom has a flip phone. <laughs> when you call my mom, she has to do this. <laughs> That's how she answered the phone, like this. <laughs> but can I tell you, she's content. You call her, she just, hello? <laughs> she's content. Because she's not looking for satisfaction. I got to buy the new phone. I got to buy, she's had the same phone since 96. And it doesn't matter. But we continually, continually look for something that we think that will satisfy us. So if Pleasure Town doesn't work, what about the Twin Cities of Wisdom and Folly? Have you ever been to Wisdom? It's a great city. Streets are clean. It's really organized. The streetlights work. The buildings are built really, really well. And at night, it's really, really bright. All the lights work. You can see where you're going. But over the bridge... Next to it is folly. It's a different story over at folly. Trash all over the streets. Lights don't really work. The buildings are falling apart. At night, dark. Can't see anything. Stumbling, run into things. And if somebody said, which city is better for you to live in? In wisdom or to live in folly? Most people would say it's better to live in wisdom. It's better. Better to be there. Now, it's true that wisdom will often keep you from being hurt and keep you from bumping into things and things like that. But folly's pretty fun, too. You can do a lot of fun things in folly that you couldn't really do in wisdom. And there's a sort of saying that, you know, uh, cheaters never win or Good things only come to those who are doing the right thing. Being foolish never really pans out. But we know, we've seen some situations in life where that hasn't happened. In the NFL, a couple years ago, there was a running back by the name of LeGarrette Blunt, 
who was upset that he was not getting enough time playing to play for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And so in the middle of the game, he walks off field. In the middle game. Now, it's bad enough. You're already not playing that much. And then you walk off the field. So the next day, they let him go. They said that's what he deserves. That's what he gets. People who quit, they don't succeed in life. Only problem is he signed with the Patriots and won the Super Bowl. (laughs) And so it's not always true that doing the wrong thing doesn't always, it might end you up in something that's good. Cheaters never win. Not true. Ask the Houston Astros. (laughs) So which is it better to live in? Well, this is what Koheleth says. Verse 12, I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? What he's trying to say is there's nobody who can come after me and test these things like I can. There's nobody who can come and say, well, Solomon, you didn't really do it right. Let me show you how to really do it. He did it at the top. He says, I saw that wisdom is better than folly. There it is. Wisdom is better than folly. It's better to be wise than to be stupid. That's true. Just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in darkness. So there it is. It's better to live in wisdom than it is to live in folly. Here's the problem. Wisdom and folly, they are all uh, two cities that are on the edge of uh, a body of water. And an earthquake happens in the middle of the ocean. And that earthquake sends a tsunami with millions of tons of water toward both of these cities, and it's going to destroy anything in its path. There's no getting away from it. Here's the question. That tsunami is going to go through wisdom, and it's going to go through folly. Everybody in wisdom, everybody in folly is going to die. So here's here's the question. Is it better to live in wisdom or folly? It don't matter. Is it better to live in wisdom? Well, yeah. But... If a tsunami comes through and takes everybody, then what does it matter where you live? That's what he says. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. This is what he's saying. You can be a wise person. Is that where satisfaction is found? Being wise. Wisdom, Chuck Swindoll said this years ago, uh, wisdom is a skill for living. Are you able to navigate through life? In the Bible, wisdom is used not just of somebody who has a bunch of knowledge in their head, but it's somebody who can do things skillfully. They have knowledge, skill, understanding. It was used of people who helped build the temple, that they did it with wisdom. Someone in our church who has wisdom in doing that was Deacon Allen. Deacon Allen would build things. He would, in our house, we had our uh, garage that he converted to playrooms for my mom's daycare in both houses that we had. Wisdom and skill and ability, that's good to have. But in the end, the wise person ends up in the grave. The professor ends up in the grave. And the dude on the corner of the street who lost all of his money gambling, who's now living out of his car, they both end up in the same cemetery. So then what is the benefit then of wisdom over folly? And he's saying there is none. It's different. So then he says, so I hated life. (laughs) 
What's the point? I hate life. Now, does that, does that strike you? When you read the Bible, you're not, you're not expecting to hear the Bible say, somebody say, I hated life. But you do remember guys like Job, uh, Moses, Elijah. He just won a huge battle against the prophets of Baal. And now he's under a tree like, I want to die. <laughs> Kill me, God. Isn't it true? Just be honest with me just for a moment. I know we're in church, but just be honest. Isn't there sometimes we're like, I, I hate life. Because of the things that I'm seeing, because of the things that I'm experiencing. One pastor described it as seeing the world like a playground that has been rusted and has nails, rusty nails coming out of it. You can see the good that it once was, but now anybody who goes to play on it is just cut up by it. That's the world that we live in. All of us, I think, deep down in our souls, we remember Eden. And that's why when we look at the world, we say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And because when I see what I see and I hear what I hear, this is not, and it's okay. I think the Bible is here to give us the ability to have those kinds of words that we can form in our mouth to say there are times, this is how I feel. Because sometimes in church, it's like, just say everything is good. Just say God is good all the time. And just say everything is always great. No, no, no. Sometimes you come in and you are sad. Sometimes you come in and you are tired. We walked up a hill last, uh, yesterday. I said, good morning, Joe. He said, ugh. <laughs> he didn't come and said, I'm blessed and I'm, I'm full of you. He was like, no, nah, I'm tired. And sometimes your soul is tired. He says, so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So he leaves from wisdom and from folly, and he stops and he sees a workaholics anonymous meeting. Let me walk in there, and let me just see, because maybe it will be found in work. So he comes in, he sits down, and guys are talking about their, their work. And one guy's like, and this is sort of what all of them were saying, the reason why I'm working so hard is because I want to build legacy. I want to build generational wealth. I want my kids to have more than I did. I want my children and my children's children to have everything I didn't have. So that's why I work so hard. That's why I work my fingers to the bone because I want my legacy to be great. I want my kids to be great. And look at what he's going to say. He says, I, verse 18, I hated all things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether the person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun, for a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving for which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief, and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. 
So he said, oh, we're working so that our kids, kids, kids can have wealth. We want to build generational wealth. We want to set up our kids for success. But here's the problem, Kohelet says. You do all of that, and what if your child, your son, your daughter is a moron? What happens if you work hard, you give it all to them, you die, and then they say, you know what? I think I can double this. We'll go down to Vegas, put an all on 22 black. Come on, guys, clap with me, let's go. 22, 19 red. All gone. You know, statistics say that 60% of what people inherit is gone by the second generation? You can do all that work, and then the person who comes after you could lose it all. If that's the case, then what is the point? You know this to be true. Like, watch this. You come to my house, you do some laundry for me, you clean my windows, you wash my floors, you do the dishes, and then for you doing that, I give you a thousand dollars. Here's a thousand. So you go home to your spouse and say, hey, I got a thousand dollars and I was only there for a couple hours. This is great. And then your cat comes, takes that money, runs out the door, and then spreads it all over the district. <laughs> now what happens, there's two lessons for this. The first is don't have cats. The second one, the second one is if, let's just, let's just say, let's just say that I told you, you come back to my house and every day you work for me, I'll pay you $1,000 to do all that work. But here's the catch. Every time you go home, something would happen to the money. Here's a question. Would you continue to work? If you didn't hear it online, Deacon Ellis said, kill the cat. <laughs> Isn't that what the prodigal did? He said, Dad, I want you to give me a share of the inheritance. He goes and he uses it and wastes it all on riotous living. So what happens if your son or your daughter does something like that? What happens if all that you work for, it's gone? So he says, all you get for your work is anxiousness, grief, pain, and insomnia. You notice what he said there at the end? Where he said, where am I? He said, 22, what do people get from all the toil and anxious striving which they labor under the sun all their days? Their work is grief. Pain, even at night, their minds do not rest. Literally in Hebrew, it's their minds won't lay down. This, too, is meaningless. Now, at this point in the story, you expect him to say, so I went to the top of my palace and I jumped off. <laughs> because why would I want to live in this world? And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you ever been driving with somebody who don't know how to drive? And, and they're driving and they go, oh, that's the exit. <laughs> And almost break your neck. This is what, this is what the, 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 the preacher does. He's driving along and then you think we're going on one way. And then all of a sudden he goes, Whoop! And you're like, where are we going now? Because all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he gives us hope. Watch this. Verse 24. So he says, a person can do nothing better 
and to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. Wait! Koheleth, you've been saying this whole time, we can't find satisfaction in eating and drinking in our work. So why now are you switching? I thought he says all meaningless. Look what he says. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Here's what the preacher is saying to us. Up until this point, we haven't really heard anything about God. We had one time where he said, God has laid this heavy burden, but he's been trying to pursue all these things. But what is missing? He doesn't. From God, there really is no enjoyment. So he's saying all enjoyment, all joy, it actually comes from God. So this is what Koheleth is trying to get us to see. He's saying you need to see life as a gift from the giver. See life as a gift from the giver. Don't see the things God gives us as a means to an end. So why does God give us those things that he gives us? In order that we might enjoy them as a gift from his hand. This is important to know. Think about it. Think about food. If food is only about getting the nutrients, I got my proteins, I got my carbs, I got my fats, I got my micronutrients, I got all those antioxidants. If that's all food is about, then why does God give all these foods different flavor? You know how many fruits there are in the world? Like 2,000. You need 2,000 fruits for and the, and the Western world only uses like 10% of those fruits. Why? Like you, you go to the Garden of... Uh, I'm sorry, Garden of Gethsemane. The garden, <laughs> the garden of Eden, and you see all of those fruit trees. Why did God make all those trees? So you guys can eat from all of this. Why? Flavors. Banana is, doesn't taste the same as apple. Watermelon doesn't taste the same as lemon. Broccoli doesn't taste the same as spinach. Tomato doesn't taste the same as tomato. <laughs> I want to say something evil, but I was like, if... <laughs> and God puts flavor in all. We, there's a thing where we get called HelloFresh, and it sends you your, uh, your meals with all the ingredients and the instructions on how to make it. And so my wife's been doing it every night. She's been cooking her little food up. And you know what she does to me every night? Babe, taste this, taste this, taste this. You got it to every night. This is fire. It's so good. Why? Because all these different flavors, stuff we never use, plum, gravy, all this kind of different stuff. Why? Because God has given us flavor for the purpose of enjoyment. He has not given us food just to fuel us. It's an important thing. The possibilities are in this. Is that a coincidence? Think about wine. God has given us wine. It wasn't an an invention of Adam and Eve, like in the back, like doing it was like, don't tell God about this. (laughs) God gave it to them. He made them and he put them in the garden. 
He gave them intercourse. It wasn't something he said, hey, what are you guys doing? He gave it to them as a gift from his hand. But this is what you have to understand, and this is so important. Ultimate satisfaction is not found in the gifts, but is found in the giver. If you are trying to enjoy God's gifts apart from him, you won't find true enjoyment. So real satisfaction does not come from the gifts under the sun, but from the giver who is above the sun. This is what Koheleth is trying to teach us. He's trying to teach us that true enjoyment, true satisfaction comes from knowing God. God, if he's at the center of your life, things we do under the sun can have real meaning. My favorite passage is in Psalm um, 16, verse 11. It says, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. There's pleasures in the presence of God. How about work? When, you remember when God placed Adam and Eve in the garden? He didn't just say, I want to just lounge around and do nothing. He had, I, I want you to work the garden. Work is not a product of the fall. Work is a part of the way God has made this world to work. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. And then listen to 1 Corinthians 15.58, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There is no direct quote from the book of Ecclesiastes, but I think it's alluded to here because I think you could say your labor in the Lord is not meaningless. God has called us to work. God has called us to live in this world and to do work for him. If you're in the room or you're watching online and you're not a Christian, can I just ask you a question? What what meaning do you see or have in this world apart from God? It's true what Coelho is saying. He's saying, if you don't have God, then this life is meaningless. What, where do you, what are you living for? What is it that you're searching for? Because without God, you can't really have meaning. There is no meaning apart from God. And I love how he says here at the end that, the things that the sinners work for and store and have that they end up just being given over to the, his children. It's not always true, but you do see that in Scripture. You remember when uh, Haman, he went to the king and tried to get the parade done all in his honor, and then it ended up being for Mordecai. That's usually what happens. God has sinners. They work and they work, and then God just takes it and he gives it to his children. Jesus said, the meek will inherit the earth. We, the earth, all this earth is going to be for those who know Jesus. So everything is meaningless without Jesus. But with Jesus, we can enjoy everything. So we get ready to close. I love the story of the prodigal because it's just so rich with meaning and illustrations. And if you remember the story, it begins with a party. Remember, he goes out and he's trying to... Uh, just live it up, and he's dancing, and music, and there's food. And so it kind of leaves a bad taste in our mouth when we read about that party. But you know that the story begins with the party, but it also ends with the party. As he comes back home, there's a party for him, and they're celebrating the fact that he was dead and he's now alive. But here's the important thing that you have to understand is that the only way for him to really enjoy this party is he has to live in the Father's love. 
If he doesn't live and understand and recognize the Father's love, he cannot live in true joy. Food, dancing, all of that because his son was dead, but now he's alive. Until he's satisfied in the love that his father has for him, he really cannot find joy in the party. So you won't find ultimate lasting satisfaction in this world under the sun until you embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me leave you with a quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a brilliant philosopher, writer, and he has this famous quote where he talks about our desires. And I'll just leave you with this. He says, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So let's leave the mud pies and enjoy a holiday at the sea. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. If you would love to hear more sermons like this one or find out more about our church, please visit us at villagebaptisthome.org. Until next time, take care and God bless.